Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series dedicated to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a variety of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors on how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In this episode, Lauren turbrock Elmstead sits down with Dr. Amanda Barton to discuss Amanda's recent transition from teaching for the writing program to a new position with the Billikens First Chapter program. We spend time thinking about our academic interests in medical humanities, particularly as it affects our ideas about Cura Personalis and the first-year student. I'm Lauren, a PhD candidate in the English department. I'm currently teaching English 3730, Intro to Medical Humanities, and I'm a graduate assistant in the Compass Lab. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Amanda Barton. She started at SLU as a master's student in 2008. She started the PhD program in 2010, and she's been with the writing program since then. As of October 2021, though, she is now one of four first-year navigators with the Billikens First Chapter program. This episode was originally planned to discuss teaching the medical humanities theme in the writing program. During that planning, Amanda was offered this position in the Billikens First Chapter program here at SLU. So we decided to pivot the episode to more of an interview and discussion about what teaching medical humanities for the writing program might do for someone who then goes into an administrative position. Thank you so much, Amanda, for taking the time to talk with me as you are taking on this new role. You're so welcome. I'm very happy to be here with you. I'm hoping that we can start this episode with you explaining a little bit about the program since it is so new, as well as your position. This is actually a pilot program that rolled out this year uh, rather hectically. And we are, we are a program that's intended to offer holistic support in the transition to SLU for first-year students. We focus on a rather small cohort of students who in their admissions materials identified as a sort of constellation of demographics that are traditionally underrepresented, underprepared, and by stint of, um, of those identifiers puts them statistically at a higher risk of not continuing on either from the first semester to the second semester or from freshman year to sophomore year. And so this is this program is really meant to support these students on their transition to SLU and success uh, going forward. We're hoping that out of this program they'll take the skills that they need um, to succeed as they proceed on through the rest of undergrad and hopefully into graduate school for those where it's appropriate. Now, uh, when I say holistically, we're looking, we're not just an academic support program, which is where a lot of um, other like student success programs focus on, but we're talking about life skills. We're um, teaching the students that what's often called the hidden curriculum of um, higher education. And some of these students, I think I, I should uh, mention, 
are um, first generation students. So they're coming into not all of them, but a good portion of our, our cohort are first generation students. So they're coming into SLU without the sort of family or like social support that some other students have with family members or friends of their family who have gone through the experience of, of getting a college degree. And that actually accounts for a lot. Um, and there are a lot of other, a lot of other, of course, considerations that our population of students are encountering. And in fact, in just the four weeks that I've been in the program, it's been really interesting to see a lot of things that, that I knew intellectually and that I had actually sometimes encountered in the classroom with my students. Uh, but to actually be able to sit down and, and support a student and talk constructively, it's been interesting and rewarding and also a challenge to, to be able to actually sit down with these students as they're, they're facing some of the, the barriers, the very real barriers that, um, that they encounter uh, on this transition into St. Louis University. So I actually just saw in my email today the notification from the president's office that, t that today, November 8th, is National First Generation College Day. Um, so it's kind of amazing that we're recording this episode today. And you yeah. had already mentioned um, that this program is the the population that it is serving is largely first generation students. Yeah. Um, is that is that purposeful in how students are being enrolled into this program, or is that kind of just how things happened? I mean, it 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 is um, in a way it is purposeful. Uh, when this when the program was originally envisioned, mind you, I wasn't on the um, the exploratory committee that that put it together. I, I didn't come on until the job posting went up, but I, I do know that one of the like first ideas that went into it is that the director of student success uh, looked at the demographics of the students who are, were, were at higher highest risk of attrition. And one of the markers that was very common with those students was first-generation students um, are at very high risk of not continuing on from freshman year to sophomore year. And so that group is one group of student that, students that specifically got connected with the program. Now, because they wanted to keep the program small so that each of the navigators, and like we said before, there, there are four of us, um, each of the navigators has a very small caseload of students compared to um, other student support services on campus. So I have a caseload of about 40 students, um, which is what the other navigators have. And that allows us, ideally, we'll be meeting with the students um, twice a month. Some of my caseload, I'm, I've already gotten to the point where I've met with them twice, um, but we're still also doing initial outreach because we came on um, in the middle of the semester. So ideally, this is a high contact advising model. And that allows us for like, these populations of students like first generation students to really make sure that 
we are a hub for them. I think that also the, like being a first generation student, um, just a lot of the other um, groups that tend to be underrepresented in, in higher education because they're coming from groups that are traditionally underrepresented um, are more likely to be first generation students. Just in case anybody listening wasn't aware that about the National First Gen College Day, which is really exciting. And it's, I think it's really important that not only are first gen college students like recognized, but also celebrated at institutions, especially like private institutions like St. Louis University. There were actually events today the Division of Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Engagement, I'm still getting used to their new name, um, I was actually out by the clock tower today and they had hot cocoa and cookies and free t-shirts that said Slew First Gen and buttons. And, um, and that's really exciting because our department or our program is actually working really closely with DICE. In fact, one of our navigators is a joint appointment with us and DICE. So a lot of the diversity and inclusion initiatives that SLU is trying to focus on now are actually, I guess it's not a lot, but we are kind of tied to, uh, to some of those in that um, supporting and therefore being able to retain these students and allowing these students to continue on to their goals um, is a big part of this program. Yeah, I, I was not anticipating so much of this conversation being dedicated to first generation students, but I also, it it's kind of, um, it's fascinating me because I do think those of us in the writing program, when, when we're teaching for the writing program and we're teaching 1500 or 1900, we may not always be aware of how many students we have who are first generation um, and who do need that kind of support. And mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you you are in that role because you have the experience of an instructor at that level and now you are working with them in a in another capacity can you talk a little bit about maybe how your experience in the writing program in teaching um, classes like English 1500 or English 1900 has affected maybe your responsibilities in this new role? I will try to, I will try to keep myself brief um, because there are, there are so many ways that this new role um, overlaps with my experience as a, as an instructor of introductory classes, um, and specifically many years now of writing program um, experience. I think one thing that most of our listeners um, who are also writing program instructors realize is students are in writing classes are more likely to bring in personal things to the classroom to their writing. Um, and there are a lot of times, I know this is something that, that we talked about early in my graduate 
work <laughs> is that you have to be prepared for some students who will likely be comfortable enough with you to maybe even feel to you like they're oversharing. But, and part of that just has to do with the difference between the experience of a writing class in your first year versus a lot of the other introductory course courses the students are taking. So, I mean, one of the things that I was very interested in when I did decide to take this particular role was supporting students and helping to educate students about communicating with faculty members, right? I mean, how many times has a professor stood in front of the class after every single class and been like, yes, please come to my office hours, you know, please come talk to, <laughs> come talk to me. One thing that I've noticed in several of my conversations with colleagues, um, be it other early career um, teachers like doctoral candidates or like fresh PhDs or or more experienced professors, um, like I was talking to the chair of women and gender studies about this, that even when I was a student, I didn't want to bother my professors, right? And so trying to actually like put a human face on um, their instructors for them is really important. Being used to the students who would bring a little extra into a little extra of themselves into the writing classroom, I think prepared me for really sitting down and being open with students. I mean, and on, in addition to that, I have personally pursued training and information and experience about making my classroom more inclusive and right. It's kind of like taking it that and that actual step to be student-centered, right? A lot of people say, oh, I have, um, you know, my philosophy is that I have a student-centered classroom, but actually doing the work to learn what an inclusive classroom feels like um, and looks like and what you can actually do to make students feel included, I actually find is, is really transferable to being able to hold space for a student who is maybe a little confused or a little intimidated by where they are or what they're doing. And I think that that's, that's really important too as a professor and as a student support administrator, like somebody in student development. It is interesting to me in academic, um, or on academic social media, right? Like you see mm -hmm. this a lot, the complaints from instructors about students. And yeah. it's largely complaints that are things that a, a, a student who is new to a university just might not know, right? Yep. And and we do often, and I fall into these traps sometimes where I get frustrated because a student is maybe not communicating with me and they may, may stop showing up to class and then they don't email and then they show back up a few weeks later and, you know, and there's a, a tendency to be frustrated 
mm-hmm. with that kind of stuff, but it's also it's not always fair to assume that all students one know those those responsibilities and two feel comfortable like you said quote unquote like bothering their instructor right because Mm -hmm. they may already have this impression that an instructor is not there to help you in that way right an instructor is there to to give you assignments and to grade those assignments and and that's kind of it if you have something else going on or you might not be sure how to navigate the the university system that is completely new to you right that's exactly. not that's not the instructor's job so i i do find myself kind of like oh yes like let's commiserate between instructors but at the same time how much of that is maybe complaining about things that a student just isn't aware of yeah 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 and i think um I'm glad you used the word navigate there. We actually have a, a have a joke in the office that we're going to make a navigate jar. So every time we use the word navigate, we can put some money in it. But it, I mean, it, it is. And the pressures on like faculty members are different than the pressures on students. And um, the, if the student one doesn't know, like again, how to, how to navigate the university, where to go for help, um, that can be an issue. Um, since we talked about first gen students um, a little bit ago, I think it might be important to circle back to to both first gen students and also um, students who come from a like a lower income bracket, like working class students. Um, they are also carrying particular cultural um, ideas and expectations with them that a lot of one, um, students who have maybe been through, um, like a preparatory education for college, um, like maybe they don't carry, or it may uh, be another difference between socioeconomic class culture. Um, and that is the, the idea of not asking for help, not wanting to be seen as needing the help, or there's also the fact that they are aware that they're moving into um, a different class environment or an environment with like that mix of class cultures and they want to fit in. And so there are some students um, who just won't go asking for help because they don't, there's, they feel that there's stigma attached to asking for help, to going to tutoring, to seeking support. Um, or maybe they don't want to draw attention to right, the financial aid they're receiving, and so they won't go ask for help um, understanding their tuition bill or um, you know, talking to their financial aid counselor about making arrangements or any of these various other like things that can come up with trying to trying to fit into a new, what is essentially a new culture with new norms and expectations. Um, And it's stressful too. And I think that that's another thing that a lot of instructors don't keep in mind 
not I'm not saying consciously, but I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to call out any of my colleagues. Um, but I think it, it's something that I know that I've done as as an as an instructor. I've been focused on the oh, you know, college students have really tight schedules and so they're stressed about that. But forget to consciously think about how stressful it can be uh, orienting to a new culture with the with new expectations. And it's so it seems like SLU's commitment to cura personalis, right, which is mm-hmm. care for the whole person, seems yes. deeply embedded in this program for yes. not only first year students, but also a particular population of first year students. Mm-hmm. I am really interested in this because, um, you know, you and I both have academic interests in medical humanities and disability studies. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you were just talking, I was thinking about, you know, when I first learned how students who might have had accommodations, say, when they were in high school, you know, those don't automatically transfer over. It is up to the student to present that information, ask for those accommodations, and then they have to go to each of their instructors and make sure mm-hmm. that their instructors are aware of their of their accommodations. And one, that can be incredibly intimidating. And yes. two, like you said, there is a stigma attached to that for a lot of students. And so if they feel like they've been carrying that stigma all throughout perhaps at least high school, maybe their entire education up to this point, it's very easy to want to get rid of that. You know, you're, you're entering college. And so like the feeling of not wanting that anymore, not wanting that label anymore, not wanting to carry that baggage into this new into this new setting is is very real. So when you were talking, it, it reminded me a lot about that. And and when I have students who I see, you know, on banner that they have accommodations, I always try to make sure I reach out to them to kind of mm-hmm. take some of that pressure off of them. Yeah. Um, you know, because it is it is it is intimidating. And so, and again, sometimes they want to just, they want to do it without, you know, because they don't want to, they don't want to have that label. And so, um, but be part of the reason that I love being at SLU is this focus on, you know, caring for the whole person. And I Mm -hmm. always want to make sure that my students know that I see them and I under, you know, I understand that it is an intimidating process and that I can help them. It, it seems as though this program, Billiken's first chapter, is working toward making that, that more accessible to, to first-year students. And again, so, you know, this is all, this has me thinking about disability studies and medical humanities. So, mm-hmm. um, do you do you mind talking a little bit about your academic interest in in those fields and cura personalis and how that's maybe transferred into your role here? So, it's really interesting too because, like, the the background of my my academic interests, 
I never would have expected with the research path that I started on that I'd kind of end up like coming back around to this uh, because one of the ways that I ended up here and I am I'm going to come back to my academic interest but I want to add one thing first <laughs> um, is that I was I was an academic um, administrator years and years and years ago <laughs> like um, so I um, yeah I was actually undergraduate coordinator um, at Washington University's German department and I actually realized in that position that I loved working with the students and I also saw that if I was going to keep working in um, post-secondary education and work directly with students and hope to make any kind of money um, I was going to need a master's degree at least um, and then silly me I just decided to go um, pursue my original like research interests that I loved in undergrad which was medieval literature and then kind of fell down this really interesting rabbit hole through um, my graduate work which um, anybody who has actually made it several years through graduate school knows that it never quite turns out how you think it's going to turn out um, and so I ended up getting interested in pain in literature because of a night school class I'd taken with David Lawton before I actually went back to graduate school and um, started looking at pain in the stuff that I was reading in my seminar classes. And then I took a disability, a disability studies seminar um, with uh, Sarah Vandenberg and loved it and uh, realized that while I was really interested in pain, and that's what my dissertation research focused on, representations of pain in late Middle English or late medieval English literature, I was like interested in the human body as a whole. And like, that's sort of how I got interested in the medical humanities, because I was thinking about how we think about the human body. It also took me into women and gender studies and critical race theory <laughs> because I realized all of these different things had things to say about the human body. But I kept coming back to the medical humanities because I was like, I was really fascinated. I spend a good chunk of a chapter in my dissertation talking about how we define pain, like what is pain and um, diving pretty deeply into um, philosophy and theology and medicine in that process. Um, and, you know, talking about the separation of pain and suffering. And um, so while I was in the process of writing my dissertation, um, I actually had the chance. Uh, we, Paul Lynch had put out the call for um, pilot topics for English 1900 because that was when um, we were switching over to the themed um, English 1900 classes. Um, and so I got to work with some of the other graduate students, Natalie Monzik and Christina Hildebrandt, on proposing the medical humanities uh, topic and putting that together and teaching that along with the research that I was doing on ideas about 
health and suffering and humanness from, you know, a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago, um, was like just fascinating. I guess it was only 500 years ago. I went the wrong way. <laughs> went the wrong way from a thousand. <laughs> I'm I'm an English PhD. I'm not a math PhD. <laughs> I guess you wanted me to talk about cure personalis with that too, right? Um, I, it, so, so I want to say I want to say real quick because I think you know, Doctor Vandenberg, you know Sarah needs like a major shout out here because yeah, my dissertation has also stemmed from her disability studies class specifically the unit on pain as well now i am in rhetoric and composition and so (laughs) you know i i do not have the literature background but Mm -hmm. that class has has inspired at least two dissertations now so yeah Sarah um so um anyway but yeah so I do think that I don't know about you but you know I didn't know that I had such a commitment to cure a personalist before coming to SLU right I Mm -hmm. didn't have that I didn't have a name for it and I didn't have um you know, kind of like a university-wide mission to right. to kind of guide me on that. But, um, you know, I do find myself so frequently when I'm teaching for the writing program, reminding myself of that. And so, you know, did, have you, did you find yourself also kind of want, wanting to remain committed to that as both an instructor and then also now in your new role or or have, are those separate things for you? No, I don't think they're separate things for me. Um, I do I do think that that's um, like you. It was this was a value that I, I had a commitment to. Um, but before uh, but before actually encountering the Jesuit mission and having Cure Personalis articulated for me, um, I didn't really have a name for it. And being able to to actually point to that as a value that SLU holds has really helped me as an instructor. Um, because I, I do think that sometimes when you go and look at... Um, like, so like industry, so social media, right? So uh, social, like you brought up earlier, that um, sometimes a lot of the the discussions feel, feel like they're not accounting for like the the humanness of the students that are involved in higher education. And I say involved, because it's not always just about instruction sometimes it's about other experiences that students have as college students and members of campus communities but to be able to point to that in my classroom when i was an instructor um, and say that i wanted to make that a space for the for the student's whole person Right. And thinking about how my attendance policy, as far as I could within right the department and the institution's requirements, 
but my attendance policy or the structure of my assignments or how I made myself available. And, and this was an interesting thing for me with COVID is I know like online instruction and hybrid instruction were really exhausting for everybody. I found it really exhausting, but I also found that it created accessibility and inclusivity for some students in ways that I hadn't realized was missing, right? Like when I was teaching hybrid classes, they weren't officially hybrid classes, they were face-to-face, -face, but we were on Zoom and half the class was not there because we were social distancing. But um, there were a lot of students who never spoke up when they were in the classroom, but they would drop stuff in chat. And I had a lot of students who probably would not have walked over to my office to ask me a question, but they would hop on Zoom. And part of it, I think, maybe a time thing, right? Walking all the way down to Adorjan or McGannon where I had my office the last couple years from <laughs> where most students have their classes is a bit of a haul. Um, and so that might be something, but I mean, that's, that's another, like just generally accessibility thing, whether for disabled students or for students more generally, um, you know, like how big is the campus? How packed is their schedule? How realistic is it for them to be able to walk to a professor's office hours? I mean, I don't think a lot of students are, are really comfortable with that by appointment on, uh, on syllabi two. So thinking about all, like all of these, these various barriers and thinking about how I could, how I could create a space where the students were actually able to be there and be human rather than just just be a, the student part of themselves is very important to me i mean before i before i transitioned into um, student development i did both i did both in person and zoom when we were allowed to be in person in offices with each other again um, and I mean, students were using both. Um, they were using Zoom way more, but I did have a couple who, I think because of how last year went, that they, they just wanted to like make that extra effort to be in person. But yeah, I don't like, and even now in, um, in this new position, I've had, I've had several students who uh, ended up just asking if we could meet by Zoom uh, when we had one of our advising appointments. Um, and knowing that I have that to offer to them um, has been, like, it's made me feel better. Um, it's made me feel better that I could be flexible in that way uh, for the students. Um, but I do think, I do think that maybe we, sh we could um, sort of acknowledge um, teaching medical humanities in the pandemic and also having this virtue, this virtue, this value of cura personalis as we are, um, as we are approaching teaching or teaching and supporting students um, during a pandemic, um, which is still ongoing. I know that there are, there are probably lots of different things that we could talk about, um, about trying to teach medical, not trying to teach 
about teaching medical humanities during a pandemic. Um, I mean, I know we've talked before um, about the sort of um, exhaustion um, from topics about COVID, um, but it's also, you know, being in a pandemic is a really topical thing because this is an experience that we're all currently living and all currently going through. And so a lot of the issues that come up around medical humanities are around us everywhere, right? The, um, just the question of how much, um, how much of our own comfort are we willing to sacrifice in the interest of public health? Right. And how do we find that balance between our, like, you know, our, our mental health and our social well-being and the, the concerns that public health has articulated when it comes to a particularly infectious disease. And I mean, these are all things that when we are teaching the medical humanities, we're, we're trying to think about, right? We're trying to think about, you know, what's the actual, like, what does the data tell us? Um, when we look at like sheer statistics, what's the information and therefore what's the best path with this disease or this disorder? What is the pure anatomical biological information that medical researchers have found? Right. And then what is the actual lived experience of people who have experienced that disease or are living with that disorder um, or have to go through that treatment? Um, and right. And all of this, right, it comes back to the value of cura personalis in considering the whole person. Right. If you make the body well, like, have you actually made the whole person well or have you just addressed one part of that person and failed to consider that person's other needs i know i've said this before but um you know i am so i'm we miss you in the writing program of course oh, but i, I also, <laughs> but i also am so thankful that you were offered this position and you have you have this opportunity to be in a position in which you can affect students first year experiences in this way you know beyond beyond an instructor for the writing program but also um you know helping them navigate where is the navigate jar i will put a dollar <laughs> in um, helping them navigate Right. All of these things mm -hmm. that we might take for granted as as graduate students or instructors who are we've been in these systems for a long time. And so we understand them. Um, that is not necessarily the case for um, for a lot of our students. And so I I am just very happy that you have this opportunity to fulfill that role. So. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I'm really well, like I'm really grateful and honored <laughs> that I I do have this opportunity too. Because it going back to like the stuff that we were talking about with the medical humanities uh 
or sorry, with Cure Personalis and like and thinking about how just addressing one part doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily do the whole good. Um, although sometimes we do need to address part in order to make the whole well. Um, and it's also understanding, right? Part of it is understanding what parts need attention right now in order for the whole person to be taken care of. And um, with, with this particular uh, program, I think it, it has been very interesting um, in, in that we are, yes, we are a program and we have some particular things we want to make sure that our students take out of the program. Like we have particular skills we hope um, that we will be able to teach them. And I say that because we're a pilot program and so we don't have the data to know if we've succeeded in teaching them yet, right? This is all our plan. Um, but one thing that um, I'm really grateful to our director, uh, Dr. Victoria Martin, who is the interim director of retention and student success. And she's the, um, she's the, the one who, whose vision is currently leading us is like trusting the students and remembering that the students are the experts in their own experience. And so our individual meetings with them, um, are very student led. So just because I have an agenda before a student comes in for an advising appointment of things I want to make sure that I cover, or maybe a tool that I want to give the student before they come into a, an advising appointment, um, they're the ones who tell me how I can support them, right? Um, and it's a lot of like very active listening and like what we have done for the students, for individual students in this first month has run the gamut of wraparound support um, at SLU. And that doesn't mean that we're the ones doing the wraparound support. We're connecting them. Um, so, um, you know, some of us have had to walk students over to counseling services. Um, we've had to connect students to the Dean of Students. We've referred them to Emily Tuttle, uh, the student success coach in uh, the Student Success Center, um, making sure that they're aware of, like, and, and really talking to them about whether um, a supplemental instruction session for their chemistry class is going to be what they need or if they need to go to tutoring. Um, you know, also sometimes being the person that's going to hold them accountable. So, um, you know, you have expressed you have questions about your scholarship, but you haven't contacted your financial aid counselor. So make an appointment with them now. And then the next time I see you, I'm just going to ask you how it went. Um, right. Like, you know, listening, listening to a student who maybe has been having sleep problems and giving them space to brainstorm about what they need. Um, like these are all things that, that are, are really important to what we're doing in the Billigan's first chapter, um, program. And it's also, it's also things that because we have a small cohort of students, the navigators have the bandwidth to hold that space and to actively listen and compassionately listen. 
um, to uh, to our students because we like we've only got for not that 40 is a small number of people but compared to other wraparound services on campus like we're able to like I think stand in the gap is one of the words we've been using in the office is like where where are these particular students falling into a gap and how can we be there to make sure that they don't fall into it well, thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. I know that your schedule is very busy um, transitioning into this new role. Um, and like I've already said, I am so thankful that you were chosen for this opportunity and to know that we have somebody from the writing program who is helping these students that's exciting for me, for sure. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really, I really enjoyed it. And I could probably have talked to you about this for another hour. <laughs> if you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.